0: Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 27, with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said he saved others himself. He cannot save. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land. Until the ninth hour. In Mark chapter 15 we've examined the events preceding Christ's crucifixion. The conspiracy to try Jesus in verse 1. The confusion over the charges are you the king of the Jews? The charges verses three through five, the custom of releasing a prisoner in verse six, the choice between Jesus and Barabbas in verses seven through 14, the chastening in verse 15, the contempt in verses 16 through 20. And then the story of Simon, the Cyrene, the cross bearer in verse 21. And then our attention turned to the events during the crucifixion, the cup Of the cross in verses 22 through 23, the clothing below the cross in verses 24 and 25, the citation over the cross in verse 26. And now we look at the criminals who come alongside the cross in verse 27, the contempt toward the cross in verses 29 through 32. And then a brief mention is made of the cloud covering the cross in verse 33. The servant is the king. He's been tried in verses 1 through 15. He's been mocked in verses 16 through 20. And now crucified between verses 21 through 41. And in the cross we see the revelation of Christ's love. In the cross we see the revelation of man's sin. In the cross, we see the revelation of Jesus' lordship. In the cross, we see the revelation of Jesus laying down his life. And so in verse 27, look what it says, With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. It would appear that the cross in the middle between the two thieves prepared for Barabbas is joined by two malefactors. The Bible calls them robbers, but we know in the first century, even among the Romans, even among the Jews, theft alone wasn't a capital crime. It would appear that thievery was only one of a host of sins that they were guilty of. Perhaps sedition. Perhaps rebellion. Perhaps Treason, but Jesus is crucified, and so are they. Alfred Edersheim, in his amazing work *The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah*, he gives a description of crucifixion in the first century. He writes, "Quote: First, the upright wood was planted in the ground. It was not high. Probably, the feet of the sufferer were not above a foot or two feet above the ground. The, thus." Could the communication described in the Gospels take place between him and the others? Thus also might his sacred lips be moistened with the sponge attached to a short stalk of hyssop. Next, the transverse wood antenna was placed on the ground and the sufferer laid upon it when his arms were extended, drawn and bound to it. Then, this not in Egypt, but in Carthage and Rome, a strong, sharp nail was driven first into the right, then into the left hand, clavi, tabulus. Next, the sufferer was drawn up by means of ropes, perhaps ladders and transverse, either bound or nailed to the upright in a rest or support for the body. It was called The cornu or the sedile. The sedile was a Latin word for seat. But it wasn't a seat to ensure the comfort of the person. But rather to give them a moment where they could rest in pulling themselves up in order to grasp for air, maximizing the torture and prolonging the pain. Edersheim writes... Lastly, the feet were extended and either one nail hammered into each or a large piece of iron through which both feet were hammered. And so the crucified hung for hours, even days, in an unutterable anguish of suffering until at last consciousness failed. It was Dorothy Sayers who used to say, It's curious that people who are filled with horrified indignation whenever a cat kills a sparrow can hear the story of the killing of God told Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday and experience no shock at all. The point, of course... Is the fulfillment of scripture. That's what it says in verse 28. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Uh, that scripture is found in the book of Isaiah. In that very famous passage, chapter 53, when you go from verse five all the way through verse 12 and you find in verse 12, it says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. In what sense was Jesus numbered with the transgressors? Well, remember, according to the religious leaders, he is treated like a criminal. According to the Roman occupation, he is treated like a criminal. And God's Messiah isn't going to die of old age. God's Messiah isn't going to die softly or tenderly. He is not going to slip into a coma or a dreamlike state. He is going to die a violent criminal's death. Some people have pointed out, well, this verse isn't found in some of the ancient manuscripts. And it is true. That Mark seldom quotes the Old Testament scriptures for his Roman readers. But it's also true that Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy. He is a Jew. He is born in Bethlehem. He comes and he lives the perfect life. In the grand scheme of things, Jesus is presented as a man who is treated by the authorities as an evildoer. But that's not the most compelling part of this particular passage. The most important point is that God will be treated by God as a criminal. That's the point. Jesus will be treated as an evildoer by God. How is that even possible? How is it possible that God would allow a perfect man, a righteous man, an innocent man to be treated like an evildoer? And this is the point where so many people stumble. This is why Paul would write that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But it is for those who, have, who understand it is God's mechanism of salvation. There are those who would say, I don't get it. How is it possible that an innocent man suffering for the for the people who aren't innocent, that God sees in that the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? But they don't want to hear the answer. Paul gives the answer in Second Corinthians, chapter five, verse twenty one, where Paul writes for he that is God made him. That is Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god in him the new living translation actually captures the meaning when it translates second corinthians 5:21 for god took the sinless christ and poured into him our sins then in exchange he poured god's goodness Into us. So, what does the sacrifice of Jesus accomplish? It absorbs the wrath. Against us God's wrath it pours Christ's righteousness into us Jesus will become the ransom he will be the basis of forgiveness and justification Jesus will abolish circumcision Jesus will abolish rituals as the basis of salvation but there's something perverse. There's something wicked inside of people who would rather substitute religion for a relationship with God. And so in verse 29, the contempt toward the cross, look what it says. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it up in three days. It's interesting when it says, and those who passed by, who are the passers by? Remember, Jesus is executed on the northern part of the city next to the wall where the roads meet. The pilgrims have been pouring in from the east, from the south, from the west, from the north. All of the gates are being crowded in as people celebrate the Passover. These are the people who have come. To observe the ancient ritual of Passover. One of the great ironies, of course, is they take a few moments. To, ins- to hurl insults at the Passover lamb. It's interesting also that Mark calls this blasphemy. Blasphemy is way more wicked than mockery. Or ridicule blasphemy is to speak ill of God blasphemy is to say something that is outrageous and wicked that impugns the nature of God or the character of God not only do they blasphemy but they misquote Jesus. Jesus never said that he would destroy the temple building. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 and 2, as Jesus is departing from the temple, both Jesus and the disciples are looking at the stones. They're seeing the edifice. They're seeing the golden glowing um pinnacle at the top. This place was magnificent. And and Jesus said, do you see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left one upon the other that will not be thrown down. In John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 19, the Jews ask, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Remember, Jesus has come into the temple. He's overturned the money changers and the tables because the religious leaders and money changers have been misrepresenting God to the world, to the Gentiles, to the people who have shown up. Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews remind Jesus that it took 46 years to build the temple. But John plainly says in chapter 2, verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The reality, the Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, and the collective presence of the mob was destroying the temple. Placing the Passover lamb on the cross. Critics, skeptics, unbelievers, make believers. They continue to misquote Jesus. There's something about the Bible and there's something about the the words of Jesus that people feel compelled to quote But rarely do they quote it accurately and in context. James Sire in his book, Scripture Twisting, gives an example of Jess Stern in a book on Edgar Cayce and a conversation between Stern and a follower of Cayce named Eula Allen. Quote, the topic was reincarnation. Unquote. And then Stern suddenly thought of a problem. He says, and he writes, a thought struck me. Why, if people have lived multiple lives, don't they remember them? Ah, but they do, she said. It's just something that they don't remember that they're remembering. Jesus said, I'll bring all things to thine remembrance, unquote. He just didn't say how. But for the person who's willing to actually look up the Bible passage where it says he'll bring all things to your remembrance is talking about the Holy Spirit concerning The identity and the message of Jesus. You see, the Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. The Bible teaches resurrection. The Bible doesn't say that you live multiple lives in the hopes that one day you'll learn the lessons that need to be learned. Rather, the Bible says it's appointed once for a man to die and then the judgment. And so, on the road in and out of Jerusalem, those who passed by they could see the men on the crosses. They could read the title of the Messiah and they mock him. They pause the king of the Jews and then his claims of power to destroy and rebuild the temple. The implication being people are, have traveled, they're gathered in, they're walking back and forth. What has he done? What has he done? What did he say? Well, he said he would tear down the temple and, and then he would, he would raise it back up. Oh, that's Ridiculous. How stupid is that? And so the voices join the crowds of the mocking scoffers. It's interesting to me how cruel people can be. When people are at the most difficult time in their life, several years ago there was a man who stood on top of a building and he was ready to take his own life and he, he edged his way to the end of the building and he hesitated because there's some impulse inside of us that wants to stay alive. But the crowd took up the chant and they began to say, Jump! Jump! What is what is it within human beings that is so perverse that they would wickedly take advantage of someone in such desperate circumstances? What was ironic is on the other side of town, there was a man who was getting ready to throw himself in front of a New York subway train and another group of people begged the man to stop to wait Not to do it. What is it about the human nature that will create a mechanism where one will cry out for life and the other one will cry out for death? But in this group of people, look what it says in verse 30. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. This is the unbelievers hymn of praise. Because the moment that they said, save yourself, come down from the cross. They're asking something that's not humanly possible. I need you to just do. The math for just a moment. Once the Romans placed you on a cross. You didn't come down until you were dead. The only way that a person is going to exit a cross is assistance. But again, think about what they're saying. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Because again, in the wicked perverseness of human nature, they desire a religion where nobody has to die. Where no one has to get hurt. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said he saved others himself. He cannot save. Remember, the chief priests are there during the time of what feast? It's Passover. This is the preparation day of the Passover. This is the most important day in the lives of observant Jews. Passover is like Christmas and Easter combined. These are the religious leaders. Now, I want you to think for just a moment. The religious leaders take time out of their busy schedule to make sure that the execution runs its course. Hey, you know, it is the Passover. We're preparing the lambs and there's a lot to do today, but we need to make sure that this man is dead. And they linger at the cross. And they ridicule him and they mock him. Now, we all know what mock means in our culture. It means to ridicule. It means to jeer. It means to make fun of. It means to laugh at. And it's more sinister manifestations. It means to disdain. It means to condemn. It means to abuse. In our culture, we have documentaries and we have mockumentaries where whole films will be dedicated to making fun of someone or something. It was Fyodor Dostoevsky who said, Sarcasm, the last refuge of modest and chaste. Sold people, when the privacy of their soul is coarsely and intrusively invaded. They're mocking him. When the chief priests say he saved others. They don't mean it in the salvific sense. When they say he saved others, it doesn't mean salvation from sin and hell. What they're talking about isn't about God's wrath and about God's judgment. Remember, even the religious leaders understood and did not deny that something supernatural happened when Jesus showed up. Ah, de- blind eyes were open. Deaf ears would hear. The leper would be cleansed. No one Doubted the reality of the miracles. But remember, the miracles took place in order to authenticate the message. It was the message that they denied. And what they did in order to explain the miracles was accuse him of being in league with the devil. The religious leaders. Deny that he is God's messiah. But the scornful words present an interesting paradox. If Jesus was to fulfill his mission on behalf of men. He couldn't save himself from the sufferings appointed by God. Do you remember what Paul wrote in first Timothy chapter one, verse 15? Christ, Jesus came into the world to save sinners Again, we're left with the surprising paradox. Jesus did save others, but the only way that he could save others was for himself to die. And if Jesus had saved himself from death and the cross, then that means that you would still be in your sin. It means that you would be responsible for your sin. It would mean that you would have to stand before God for your sin and give an account of your life for your sin. They mocked him as a prophet in verse 29. They mock him as a savior in verse 31. And soon in verse 32, they'll mock him as the king. Look what it says in verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Pause. Put on your thinking cap. I want you to think for just a moment. If Jesus had, in fact, left the cross, saved himself, if He had beckoned 10,000 angels to come from heaven, if He made the nails disappear, if He exited the cross, do you think the religious leaders would have believed that He's the Messiah? Hendrickson writes this, quote, If healing all kinds of diseases, restoring sight to those born blind, cleansing lepers, raising the dead. If these works of power and grace, all of them performed in the fulfillment of prophecy, did not cause them to believe in Jesus, but rather hardened their hearts so that they hated him for it. Would a descent from the cross have caused them to accept him as their Lord and Savior? course not because the truth if for whatever reason he had in fact decided that that was the way that it was going to go down in order for real redemption to take place he would have to be nailed back to that cross and look what it says even those who were crucified with him reviled him Someone asked me earlier this week, well, I don't understand. It says even those who were crucified with him reviled him. It it seems to indicate that both thieves or malefactors or criminals, the one on the left and the one on the right, they mocked him. They reviled him. And that would be true. It would appear that in the beginning, both joined in in the accusation and the mockery which is amazing in and of itself. Can you imagine? There you are affixed to a piece of wood and you have time to make fun of somebody else. The religious leaders make the basis of their belief dependent not on Christ's death on the cross. They make the basis of belief rather the willingness to To descend from the cross. To leave the cross. To abandon the cross. And this is why so many people have a crossless Christianity. Well, why does somebody have to get hurt? Why does somebody have to die? Why is it that Christianity is so severe? Remember? He is the Passover lamb. He is the one who is going to be sacrificed for the sin of the world. And it would appear again that both criminals mocked him, but it would also appear that later one of them has a change of heart. That change of heart is recorded in Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. At first they mock, they ridicule, they revile. A king, a messiah, this is ridiculous, this is insane. But then one thief takes a chance. On the cross, he believes he believes that Jesus is, in fact, a king. How do we know that? Because of the few things that are recorded of statements and conversations that take place from the cross, you'll remember the thief turns to him and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The very fact that he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, must mean that he believes that he's a king. It would appear that, in spite of the repeated abuse, and by the way, the word revile, onidzon, imperfect tense, it means they mocked, reviled, they did it again, they did it again, they, there was a repeated statement. The religious leaders declare their basis of belief. Show me and I'll believe. By the way, that is the faith of the unbeliever. The faith of the unbeliever and the make believer is when I see it, I'll believe it. But the faith of the Christian. I believe it. Now I see it. I believe it. Now I understand it. We see again Peter reflecting on this moment in first Peter chapter two verse 23. Peter, I am certain was thinking about this particular moment in time and space in first Peter chapter two verse 23 when he writes, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. Pause. Mockery from the Romans. Mockery. From the religious leaders, mockery from the criminals. Do you know what Jesus never does? He never returns evil for evil. This is interesting. Peter writes, He did not threaten. But committed himself to him who judges righteously. First Peter 224 who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. John Piper in his book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, in the chapter entitled, To Heal Us from Moral and Physical Sickness, writes, quote, The way Christ defeated death and disease was by taking them on himself and carrying them to the grave. God's judgment on the sin that brought disease was endured by Jesus when he suffered and died. The prophet Isaiah explained the death of Christ with these words. He was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we are healed Isaiah 53 5 the horrible blows to the back of Jesus bought a world without disease unquote and so a cloud gathers And descends over the nation. Look what it says in verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come. There was darkness over the whole land. Until the ninth hour. Remember. Mark is reckoning time according to the Romans. The sixth hour. Dates from the time the sun comes up. So that makes it noon. It is 12 p.m. Now when the sixth hour had come. Darkness was over the land until the ninth hour between twelve o'clock noon and three o'clock in the afternoon. An impenetrable, thick darkness descends on the area. And it would seem that Jesus is experienced the full physical and spiritual desolation that comes with this thing called bearing the burden of sin. Some. Skeptics and unbelievers have tried to explain this as some kind of eclipse or some sort of natural phenomenon where a Scirocco finds its way in the Middle East, kicks up a dust storm, making the clouds darken. But that doesn't really make much sense. Since Jesus dies on the Passover, the Passover always takes place during the time of the full moon. It would have been impossible for an eclipse to darken the sun and no eclipse has ever lasted for three hours. So what is this? What is this darkness? Is this a judgment? Is this wrath? Timothy Keller in his book, The King's Cross, makes this comment, quote, All four Gospels written take pains to show us that all the critical events of Jesus' death happen in the dark. The betrayal in the dark. The trial in the dark. The Sanhedrin in the dark. The actual moment of Jesus' death, though it is broad daylight, there is an inexplicable darkness that descends, unquote. Max Lucado says it's a blanket to hide from the face of the world the sufferings of the Savior. Keller suggests that the Bible, when darkness takes place. It's a kind of symbol of displeasure and judgment. He refers to the example in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 23. You'll remember that when the judgments came on the land of Egypt during the time of the Passover, darkness descended. Over the land. And so the first Passover. There's darkness. The last Passover. There is darkness. But who or what was God judging? Do you remember earlier? He's treated like a criminal. Not just by the Romans, not just by the Jews, but by God Himself. Jesus is experiencing the full force of God's wrath and God's punishment. We sang about it earlier. We're the murderers. We're the malefactors. We're the sinners. We are the ones who deserve the punishment. Like the thieves, we have sinned. Remember, theft wasn't a capital crime. But the reality is the multiplied transgressions is going to result in death. But one thing is true. If we want our sin on Jesus, we have to look to the cross. And this begs the most important question that could ever be asked by me to you. Remember, I keep asking you through these series when you look at the cross, what is it that you see? Do you see the love of God? Do you see a mechanism for salvation? Do you see forgiveness and reconciliation? What do you see when you look on the cross? Do you see Jesus on the cross? Again, the question. There's really only one question that matters. Do you want your sin... On Jesus. There's really only two answers. Yes, I do. No, I don't. If your answer is yes then you have the exciting opportunity to turn from your sin and turn to Him and acknowledge in love and praise and adoration that He is your Savior. But if the answer is no, then you must bear your sin alone. And this is the heart of the gospel. You see, the truth is, Jesus will bear your sin, or you will bear your sin. You will see him as a prophet, and you will see him as a savior, or you will see him as king, and some of you may see him as prophet, but reject him as savior and ignore him as king. Those are the choices. If you tell him that you love him. And if you see him as prophet, then you know that he's telling the truth. And if you see him as savior, then you know he's reconciled you to his father. And if you see him as king. Then you must yield to his demands. You have to submit to his rule. You see, this morning you will do one of two things. You will look at the cross and you will ask Jesus to take away your sin, or you'll look away from the cross and you'll remain in your sin. You can ask Him to take your sin. If that's the case, then all of a sudden, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by His wounds. You are made whole. Andrew Murray wrote, The cross of Christ doesn't make God love us. It's the outcome and the measure. Of God's love for us. Peter Lewis wrote. At Calvary we see what sin deserves. And what God requires. Calvary was too terrible. To be optional. The suffering involved. Too enormous to be unnecessary. The sufferer too precious. To have his father. To have been given over. Needlessly to such pain. But this is the deep divide. Divide. Between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of the cults. You see, the kingdom of the cults will suggest that Jesus may have died for your sins in order to make introduction, but he certainly can't make redemption. You'll have to do that on your own. By going to their church, by reading their by their their extra biblical literature, by by suffering through their rituals and regulations, but the whole gospel lies in that deep, deep, deep divide. When you look on the cross, what do you see? And if you don't see Jesus taking your sin in its entirety if you've left any portion for yourself then the judgment of that sin will in fact be yours this is what the bible says the soul that sins it shall surely die The Bible says it's appointed once for a human being to die and then comes the judgment. And all of the world is deeply divided over those people who see Jesus as the sin bearer and those that see themselves as the bearer of their own iniquity. You know, it's interesting about mockery and sarcasm and ridicule. It's on the very, very edge. It's right on the border of understanding. Do you remember what the religious leaders did? They mocked him. He saved others. Let's see if he can save himself. Why would they say such a thing? Because they understood at least something that Jesus did something extraordinary. What about you? Will you see him as the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? Or will you appear before God in your sin, responsible for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we know that for some, this is way more than just simply making the decision to see Jesus as the sin bearer. Lord, I pray that people wouldn't simply make a decision, but that a decision would result in a conversion. That somehow in seeing Jesus as the sin bearer, that they would experience light and life. Lord, so many people focus on their own wise choice, but not on Christ's work on the cross. Lord, we pray. We pray that people would come into a right relationship with you, Lord, I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would turn from darkness and turn from sin and turn to the Savior. Lord, I pray that that they would admit their sin. And their need for a savior. And heavenly father. We know that. So many people think I want blessing. But they want to ignore the cross. They want to ignore the demands of the cross. They want to ignore what it means to be a current follower of Jesus. And so heavenly father again we pray that as we see Jesus on that cross. And we see our sin on Jesus. That Lord we would turn from our sin. And we would accept the provision of hope that's in Christ. And if that's you. You can do exactly that. In a moment I'm going to give you that opportunity. We're going to stand. And you have the opportunity to come forward. And make a public declaration of love and loyalty to Jesus. Again. The focus isn't on your decision to follow Jesus, but rather your decision, which results in conversion, where the darkness becomes light, where the guilt becomes forgiveness, where the fear becomes hope. Let's stand and let's